0: Well, I love a good story, don't you? I just love a good story. I love romance stories. Okay, I'll just admit it, I do. Good versus evil, where the good guy wins, I love it. I love it where wrongs are righted and where the guy gets the girl. And some of you know this about me. I always read the last chapter of a book first. I do. Sometimes they throw rotten tomatoes at me when I say that, but it's true, I do. Because i got to know that the end of a story is good for me to invest time in the book. I know the end of your story. I, I know what's coming at the end of your story. You know, growing up, I loved the stories of Laura Ingalls Wilder and uh, Little Women. Why do you think my grandchildren call me Marmy? I loved the stories in Anne of Green Gables. I love the power of an ordinary life that faces typical everyday issues and figures out how to live well in spite of disappointment or heartbreak. Maybe some of the stories that have touched your life are the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings. Some of you, those of you who I don't get, love superhero stories, okay? (laughs) Stories that are bigger than life and come to an unexplainable and superhuman conclusion. You know, it's interesting to me that in every epic superhero tale, every hero has an inherent weakness, that he has to overcome in order to live in a place of power. Isn't that interesting? You know, stories have power in our lives. Your story is a story of power. The Bible verifies this with the words that I love, and it's really our theme scripture for the weekend, that John the Apostle wrote in conjunction with the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. And this is what it says. And they overcame him, that would be the enemy, because of the blood of the Lamb, And because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. You know, as we look at that word testimony in that powerful verse, testimony is simply an old-fashioned word for what we would call story or narrative today. So we overcome when we tell our story. When we declare the victories that God has wrought in our life. Let me tell you what your story is. Your story is the place where your human pain has met the power of God. Amen? Your story is the moment when your human disappointment is redirected by God's destiny for your life. That's your story. Your story is when your failure is miraculously transformed by the faithfulness of God, and you don't understand why, because you don't feel like you deserved it, but he did it anyway. You know, even God loves the telling of a good story. If you don't believe it, read this. God loves the telling of a good story. And one of my favorite scriptures, I call it a wow scripture, is found in Romans 15.4. And it says this, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So when we study the Bible, when we study the stories in the Bible, a couple things happen. We're instructed, we're taught, we're coached how to live well. Another thing that happens is we, we learn how to persevere, how to keep going when the going gets tough. We, we learn that, that people in the Bible times made it through tough stuff, and we can too, because we serve the same God. Amen? We learn how to apply our faith to our real everyday lives, and so we're encouraged. We're encouraged by the word of God. Now, over the next two days, tonight and tomorrow, we're going to figure out exactly what it takes to live an extraordinary story because nobody's left out. Nobody is left out of of the possibility of living an extraordinary story. I can tell you this, your ability to live a great story has nothing to do with your income, zero. Your ability to live a great story has nothing to do with how much education you do or don't have. Your ability to live a great story has nothing to do with your fertility issues or your marital status, zero. Your ability to live a great story has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with your popularity, your notoriety, or your looks. It has everything to do with your choices, your passion, and your relationship with the author of the greatest story that has ever been written. That's what it takes to live a great story is relationship with him. So we're going to dig deeply into the context and the details and the meaning found in the Word of God. We're all here to write a story to figure it out. You've you've come to a writer's conference this weekend. Did you know that? You thought you'd come to a women's conference, but you've come to a writer's conference because we're going to figure out how to write a great story. Now. Ideally, we don't write our stories alone, right? But we partner with the greatest story writer, the greatest author of all time. He wrote the Bible, the best-selling book in all of recorded history. So if I were you, I'd take his advice on a couple of your issues. If you want to live a great story, write a great story, I'd do what the Bible says if I were you. Um, Tonight, on the first night of the conference, I've prepared an outline for you. Now, as an author, let me tell you this. I hate writing outlines. Hey, anybody else, any high school students or college students in the room who says, yes, Ms. Carol, I feel your pain. I hate the outline process. But it's the outline that's going to give your story form and content. So tonight I'm going to give you the outline of how to write your great story. So number one in your outline is be a great forgiver. If you want to live a great story, sisters, you are going to have to be the best forgiver at your moment in history. Can I just tell you something? People are going to treat you the wrong way. Is that news to you? They're going to offend you. They're going to criticize you. They're going to abuse you. They're going to misuse you. They're going to torment you. They're going to defy you. They're going to ridicule you, and they're going to alienate you. You know, I made a major mistake before I came tonight. there there was a new review up online about my new book, Guide, Guard, Grace. And I thought, oh, I'll read this new review. And the review started out by saying, I hated this book. (laughs) And so I, Kelly, my sweet Kelly's going, oh, Carol, why did you do? Um, And she said, the reason I didn't like this book is because the author thinks that God still speaks today. And I thought, yes, I'm so glad that is your bone of contention. That makes my heart so happy. People are going to abuse you, misuse you, torment you, defy you, ridicule you, and alienate you. But don't let those people write your story. Don't allow those people power in your story writing ability. If you want to live a great story, you will decide today, I'm going to be the greatest forgiver as a human being in all of recorded history. How people treat you doesn't determine the content of your story. For a daughter of God, forgiveness is not an option, but it's a requirement. And listen, I have asked the Holy Spirit to start moving among you right now, that the Holy Spirit will remind you of people that you need to forgive. Write their names down and forgive them. Let it go. For a daughter of God, forgiveness is not an option, but it's a joyful, liberating, fulfilling assignment that we're called to be Jesus in the flesh and to forgive the world that treats us wrong. Okay, now I'm gonna give you a spoiler to your story. You ready for your spoiler? Not everybody you know is gonna be kind or understanding. Not everybody is going to get you. Not everyone in your family is going to be kind or understanding. Not everybody in your family is going to get you. Not everyone at work is going to be kind or understanding. Not every politician is going to be kind or understanding. Not every person who works in the media is going to be kind and understanding. But knowing that there is no excuse for the people of God not to forgive None. Zero. There's no excuse. Forgiving people who have seriously wounded you turns your story from a tragedy into a triumph. It turns it from a nothingness into a bestseller. Your one choice to forgive someone who's wronged you. You know, we serve a father who sent his only son so we could be forgiven. And as his children today, we are in the family business. And the business that we serve in is the business called forgiveness. We're on the payroll. And that's our job description. So, my advice for you. And this first part of the outline is I'm going to tell you what to do. Forgive everyone all the time. Everyone all the time. You know, Peter, Peter is my favorite disciple. Whenever I say that, I always feel like I need to say, sorry, John, but I just love Peter. Um, Peter was the outspoken one, the opinionated one. He was the one who rebuked the Lord one day and went about cutting off people's ears. Now, I can tell you by all that, Peter had a problem with forgiveness. He had a problem with forgiveness. He he was gonna make things right. He he was gonna get vengeance. And he came up to the Lord one day. It's recorded in Matthew eighteen twenty one and twenty two. And Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often should I forgive my, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him, up to seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. You know, this little phrase, 70 times 7, doesn't mean 490. I think I did the math right. But this was a colloquialism of the day, and it meant don't count. It meant to infinity and beyond. It doesn't matter how many times. That doesn't mean you need to trust the person, but you can still forgive them. Don't keep track of numbers. Don't hold a grudge. You can never say, I have forgiven enough, it's over. According to Scripture to infinity, and beyond. Now, in the same chapter of Matthew, I'm going to tell you the story that Jesus told. He went on to tell Peter and the disciples a story about an earthly king who wanted to settle his accounts with his slaves, with the people who worked under his care. And one slave owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And the king said, you know, you need to pay me this. Now, I wanted to find out how much ten. 1, talents was because I honestly didn't know and so I looked in a commentary and the first commentary told me that it was equal to 20 million dollars today and I thought that can't be right 20 million dollars so I looked in commentary number two do you know what commentary number two said 20 million dollars and I thought are you sure and so I googled it And Google told me it was $20 million. Now, I know not to always trust Google, okay? I know that. But I called one of my friends, who's rather an expert on the book of Matthew, and I said, hey, tell me how much 10,000 talents would be equal to today. And he said, oh, it'd be about $20 million, give or take. (laughs) So this slave was obviously unable to pay. First, I'm thinking of, what were you doing with $20 million? You're a slave. What in the world were you doing with it? Um, But he couldn't pay. And so the king said, I'm going to sell you. I'm going to sell your entire family to another slave owner so I get at least a little bit of the money back. And the slave fell on the ground in front of the king and he said, please don't sell me. Please forgive me. Be patient with me. I'll do my best to repay you. You know, he was willing to repay. He just didn't have the income to do it. Um, And so the king felt compassion and he released him and he forgave him the debt. He said, that's okay. Uh, I forgive you. It's fine. Go ahead. But the story doesn't end here. I hope you'll go home and read the rest of the story in Matthew 18. This forgiven slave who had been forgiven in today's economy, 20 million dollars, His wife must have had some mighty fine clothes, is all I'm saying. (laughs) This forgiven slave went out and found someone who owed him some money and said, pay me back right now. Well, the amount of money that this person owed him was about 20 bucks in today's economy. And this person begged for forgiveness and said, please. But the one who had been forgiven the $20 million debt said, no, I'm not going to forgive you. And he threw him into debtor's prison. This was appalling. It was unthinkable. It was cruelty at its finest. Well, someone was watching. His friends were watching. And the friends went and told the king, you're not going to believe what happened. You know that guy that you forgave the, the $20 million debt to? There was a guy who just owed him a $20 bill. And he wouldn't forgive him. He had him thrown into debtor's prison. Well, as you can imagine, the king was outraged. He was so angry that he handed the slave that he had forgiven over to the torturers, is what the Bible says. And then the story becomes personal because Jesus looked at Peter and he looked at the other disciples who were listening. He said, hey, guys, let me tell you something. Are you listening? My heavenly father we'll also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart you see forgiveness is a heart issue isn't it it's the place where it starts So sisters, if you wanna live a life free from torture, forgive freely, don't count the cost. Forgive extravagantly. Forgive people who don't deserve it. That's the thing about forgiveness, nobody deserves it. Forgiveness is when the innocent one lets the guilty one go free. There's nothing fair about that. But that's who we are. If you wanna write a great story, you will forgive everybody all the time. You know, forgiving someone who has wounded you deeply just may be the greatest chapter that you write with your life. Jesus has given you an opportunity to forgive so that you could be like him and so that you could write a great story. You know, one time in my life, I was dealing with a difficult person, very hard for me to forgive. And I said, God, why? Why did this person cross my pathway? Why, Why, God, why? And you know what Jesus said to me? So you could be like me so you could forgive. If you want a great story, you'll be a forgiver. James 2.13 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. A triumphant story, a great story, is always one of forgiveness and mercy. Now, number two. Number two of our outline tonight. Be a great worshiper. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Psalm 66, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 66. I got to put my glasses on. No, I don't. I'm just going to read up there. It says, Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. Praise the Lord, all you peoples who keeps us in, we praise the Lord, who keeps us in life. Sisters, when you don't know what else to do, choose to worship. When life is crowding in on you, choose to worship. When you don't like your life and you're not even sure you like your family, open your mouth and sing. When you're in a battle that's threatening to turn your magnificent life into a meaningless existence, put your hands in the air and sing a song to the Lord. A great story is always a musical. It's always a musical. <laughs> um, a great story is inevitably when a hero or a heroine breaks out in song in the middle of the street. You know, when Craig and I were first married, we just thought we were so much alike. Well, it took about two days for us to figure out we weren't alike. Um <laughs> And, and one of the first conflicts we had was over the types of movies we like to watch. Now just go ahead and forgive Craig for doing this, okay? But on our honeymoon, we'd been married four days and he took me to see Star Wars. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Uh, I forgave him. Well, I think I need to forgive him again because I'm talking about him. <laughs> Craig loved westerns and war movies and adventure films and. Bad guy versus good guy when the good guy barely wins by the skin of his teeth at the end. Um, and I loved musicals. When we got married over 40 years ago, I had already seen The Sound of Music 32 times. <laughs> I wonder how many times I've seen it now. Um, and my, when I wanted to watch it, my very straightforward, wise groom looked at me and he said, Carol, musicals are not realistic. Who breaks out dancing in the streets? And I wanted to say to him, and you think Star Wars is realistic? But he said to me, who breaks out dancing in the streets? And I said, we all should. We know Jesus Christ. We should all break out in song in the streets. We are a people who's known for our song. The Bible is actually a musical, and I can prove it to you. I'm going to prove it to you tonight, okay? The three boys worshiped God in the fiery furnace. You should do no less. David sang when he was depressed. You should do no less. Moses and the people of Israel sang as they watched Pharaoh and his troops drown in the Red Sea. Jehoshaphat and the entire army of Judah sang loudly when they were being unfairly attacked. One of my favorite um, chapters in And the entire Bible is 2 Chronicles 20. And the enemy was pounding its way toward the um, boundaries of Judah. And the people were in the church. They were praying. They had fasted. They had gathered together. And the Bible tells us in verse 19 that the people of God sang with a very loud voice. So next time you're being attacked, you've got your strategy. You're going to break out in song. You're going to sing with a very loud voice. You're going to stop whispering and you're going to start shouting. The people of God are a people who sing. It's our identity. It's what we are known for. We sing when others weep. Now, there might be tears coming down our cheeks, but we'll sing anyway. We worship when others complain. We praise when others panic. We make melody in our hearts even when we're living a life of distress. This is what Ephesians chapter five, verses 17 through 20 says. So then do not be foolish. Okay, so, so Paul and the Holy Spirit are gonna help you not be a fool, okay? They're, they're gonna help you live a wise life. And Paul and the Holy Spirit say, now don't be foolish. Let me tell you what the will of God is. How many of you have wondered, God, what is your will for my life? Well, you're about to find it in Ephesians chapter 5. It's right here. It's in the Bible. So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. This is going to be good. We're not going to be foolish. We're going to be wise, and we're going to know what God's will is for our life. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. You know, this is a determinant that every believer needs to make at the very worst moment in life. Will I sing or not? Um, When I was in college, as a freshman, there was a girl who was a senior, and everybody knew her. She was beautiful. She was a singer. She was engaged to like the best looking guy on campus, and we knew they were called to the ministry. And you know, everybody just wanted to be like her. Her name was Susie, and and her her boyfriend's name was Don. And we knew they were going to get married that summer, and and they got married at her home in in Colorado. And um, then that, so they'd just been married a, a few weeks, and that very summer they went up to Maine to have a reception at his family home up in Maine. And and Don had three or four brothers, and so they had this nice little wedding reception for Susie and Don, who had been married. And the next day, the brothers decided to go mountain climbing because that's what these boys always did. And and Susie stayed back with her mother-in-law and and her sisters-in-law, and they were just going to have a girls' day together. And the boys went off to climb mountains. Well, what happened to Susie's groom was that he fell, he slipped, and he didn't come home. His brothers carried him. And so Susie had only been married a few weeks. And what I didn't tell you about Susie was that she was a music major and was known for her gorgeous voice. And that night as all the neighbors and all the church people came to visit this family in deep and horrific grief, the windows were open because it was a hot summer day. And do you know what the people heard? They heard Susie singing because she believed the scripture, because she knew that her story was meant to be a musical. And she sang all the great hymns of the faith. Now, I'm not saying she didn't cry, okay? But I'm saying at her worst moment, she sang. First Peter chapter one, verses six through eight. In this you greatly rejoice. Now I don't know if you believe in writing in your Bibles or not. I do, but if you believe in writing in your Bibles, I want you to circle that phrase, greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Ladies, let me tell you something. There are things that you were meant to give birth to, this side of heaven, that you will never produce unless you learn how to praise your way through the darkness, through disappointment, through depression, through fear, and through pain. This is what it says in Psalm 87, verses 5 through 7. But of Zion, it shall be said. Let me tell you what Zion is in the Bible. In the Old Testament, especially in Psalms and the book of Isaiah, when Zion is referenced, it means it's a place of high praise. It's a place where the priests would go to worship the Lord. And, you know, according to the New Testament, we are the priests. Amen? And so Zion is our place of praise. It's that intimate spot where we go to worship the Lord, where it's me and Jesus, and I'm just singing my heart out to him. And Psalm 87.5 says, But of Zion it shall be said. Have you built a Zion in your life? Have you given a place in your life for praise and worship, where it's just you and Jesus, and you're singing your little heart out to him? But of Zion it shall be said. This one And that one were born in her. And the most high himself will establish her. The Lord will count when he registers the people. This one was born there. Then those who sing as well and those who play the flute shall say, all of my springs of joy are in you, Zion. I believe that the Lord is taking a census of people who are worshiping. And the people who are worshipers, he's putting them in a birthing room and saying it's time for you to give birth. It's time for you to reproduce something that you never could have on your own. But because you've chosen to worship in spite of pain, in in spite of being paralyzed in your circumstances, in spite of discouragement or disappointment, God is going to trust you to give birth to something that you never could have on your own. The Lord is taking a census of who is worshiping because dreams and destiny are born in Zion. If you don't know what God's plans for your life are, start worshiping it's his birthing room of destiny you know i think about hannah in the old testament the infertile hannah you all know her you can read about her in first samuel chapter one how she couldn't have a baby and she cried out to the lord she went to the temple and she actually cried out to the lord until she lost her voice and the priest said to her what are you so upset about are you drunk? You know, that's not the only time in scripture that people who have been praying hard have been accused of being drunk. But um, that's what the priest said to her. And she said, no, I have a heart pain. I have a heartache. And he said, you're going to have a baby. God's going to answer your prayer. Now, this might be a little too graphic for some of you. So, you know, if you wanted this to say, gee, just put your fingers in your ears for a minute. But the Bible tells us in First Samuel chapter 1, That Hannah and her husband Elkanah went home, worshiped before the Lord, and then they had relations, and Samuel was born. Because they worshiped, they gave birth to something that they could never do on their own. Maybe part of the reason you're frustrated with your story is because you haven't learned that it's a musical yet, because it's time for you to break out in song. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food. Though the flock shall be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Let's stop right there. That's, that's the portion of scripture that in your 21st century Western mind, you just might glance right over and think, yeah, that's got nothing to do with me. Oh, it's got everything to do with you. Because this verse is talking about human disappointment. It's talking about when you don't like your circumstances, what are you supposed to do? When it is the driest day of your life, when, when there's no provision, when you've got nowhere to go, when nobody loves you, when nothing's happening in your life. That's what the first part of that verse is talking about. And then the Holy Spirit goes on to say, at that moment in your life, when you don't like your life, when nothing's happening, when there's no provision, when you don't know what to do next because everything has dried up, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet, and he makes me walk on high places. That would be called Zion. When you worship the Lord, he's gonna take you and give you a different perspective over your situation. Sisters, let me tell you something the greatest time to praise the Lord is when you've had the very worst week of your life, that's your cue. That's when the orchestra starts playing, the heavenly orchestra, and is waiting for you to break out in song. That's when you lift your hands in the air and declare, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in this mouth. You know, my friends, at any given moment, you have the power to say, this is not how my story is going to end. My story is a musical. It's a great worship symphony, and if I go down, I'm going down singing. But let me tell you something. The truth is this. Worship makes you unsinkable, so you're not going down. You're staying up. You're staying afloat. Your cue to worship is when you have just lived the worst week of your life. Okay, in our outline number three, be a humble servant. Let me read to you some words from Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12. But the greatest among you, oh, let's stop right there. You wanna live the greatest story in all of recorded history? This is your instruction. This is how you live the greatest story. I think some of our professional athletes and professional musicians and actors and actresses and politicians might need to read this verse. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself (coughs) shall be exalted. You see, you are actually not the main character in your own story. Hate to tell you that, but you're not. You actually only have a supporting role in the story that you have been given to live. You're here to serve. You're here to make others' lives easier. You're here to become less and less and less as you go through every historical day of your life. You know, we live in a me-first society. I, me, mine. I need me time. Self-awareness, self-improvement, self-esteem. I don't see that in the Bible. If you want to be great, if you want to live a truly great story, you'll serve others. Mark chapter 10, calling them to himself, Jesus said to the disciples, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men, exercise authority over them. But it's not my plan for you. If you want to be part of this kingdom, If you want to do life the way I've called you to do it, I'm going to coach you to do it a different way. Whoever wishes to live the greatest story among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That's why I think mothers are such great people. Because that's all they do is just give their lives day after day after day. Cup after cup after cup of cold water in Jesus' name. You know, Jesus came to serve, and that's actually what made him such a great leader. He didn't come to lord it over us. He didn't come to demand. He didn't come to, to be served. He came to serve. My goodness, he was born in a stable with cows and sheep dung and mice running around. Um. What are your expectations of others? Let me ask you that. Do you expect others to serve you, or are you the first one to serve? Um, This is especially true in marriage. Those of you who are married, if you want to write a great story in your marriage, you'll be a great servant, and you'll be a great forgiver. And when your husband makes you watch Star Wars, you'll do it. John 3:30 says he must increase and I must decrease. Those may be the seven most important words in your life story. If we could just narrow your life story down to one theme, it might be those seven words. He must increase and I must decrease. Less of me and more of him. Actually none of me and all of him. So why do you have money? Well, that would be to serve the kingdom. Why do you have talents? Well, that would be to serve the church. Why do you have anything? Well, that would be to make hell smaller and heaven bigger. That's why we're here. Now, this spring, the Lord has touched me deeply through a story in the New Testament. It's through the story of Joseph Arimathea, who played a very minor role in the Gospels. But he's mentioned in all four Gospels. And I'm going to read it to you tonight from... His mention in Matthew chapter 27. Arimathea was a very obscure village um, about 20 miles away from Jerusalem. And Joseph was a rich man. He was actually famous in the region, he was a man of prestige, he had tremendous resources. And Mark. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Joseph was actually a religious leader of the day. He was a member of the council. He was a man of influence. And apparently, he had become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Somehow, he had been confronted with the story and the truth of Jesus. And he had come to love him. And as Jesus lay dying on the cross, everybody else had left. You know, Jesus' disciples were in hiding. They were gone. They were gone. But Joseph of Arimathea, a minor character, he wasn't a disciple. He showed up and he did the right thing. Now, Joseph knew, Joseph of Arimathea knew that what he was about to do next, he could lose all of his prestige. He could lose all of his fame. He could lose all of his notoriety by what he was choosing to do next. But he did it anyway. So let me read to you the story in Matthew Chapter 27, verse 57. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and Joseph went away. Now, you might be thinking, well, Carol, what, what does that have to do with living a great story and being a humble servant? Let, let me tell you what it has to do with that. When it came time for somebody to take care of the body of Christ, Joseph stepped up. He said, I'll do it. I'll risk everything to serve the body of Jesus Christ. He was determined to move the body of Jesus Christ from a death position to a resurrection position. And he said, I'll do it. I'll do it. One man said, I- I'm going to move the body of Christ from where it is to where it ought to be. Joseph of Arimathea decreased... So he could serve the body of Christ. It took just one man to stand up and say, I'll take care of the body. I'll do it. I'll take care of the body. You know, in verse 58, it's interesting there, that verb. It says that this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, but that verb actually doesn't do the the original Greek, it, it doesn't do it justice because what it says in the original Greek is that he begged for the body. He said, Pilate, please give it to me. I beg of you. Please give me the body. I've got to have the body. I've got to carry it. I've got to serve it. I've got to take care of you, care of it. Joseph of Arimathea, this verb says that he craved to take care of the body. He was obsessed with it. Let me get my hands on the body of Christ. Now, I have strategically, continually used the phrase, the body of Christ, and I hope some of you have understood what I'm saying. When was the last time you begged to serve the body? Please let me give more in the offering. Let let the offering probably come down my row again. i got to put more in. Please, I beg of you, let me work in the nursery. I beg of you, let me change those diapers in the nursery. Please, I beg of you, let me go on the youth retreat and cook for them. I beg you to let me do it. Please let me clean the church bathrooms, I beg you. Please, I have to do it, I must. I am obsessed with cleaning the church bathrooms. Are you obsessed with serving the body? Do you crave in the deepest part of you to serve the body? Serving the body of Christ, the church, should be our passion. We should put everything else aside in order to do it. Now, let me tell you something. When Joseph was begging for the body, it didn't look very good, and it was dead, it was bloodied. It was bruised. There wasn't anything pretty about it, but Joseph begged to serve it. He begged to serve it. So, sisters, let me tell you something. Quit criticizing the way the church looks today and start serving it regardless of how it looks. One person can move the body from death to life. Verse 59 tells us that the Joseph of Arimathea wrapped the body in clean clothes. You know what Joseph did? He added to its holiness. He added to its cleanliness by taking care of it. And then he put it in a place where resurrection could take place. It cost him something. It put him in his own tomb. And serving the body will cost you something. It'll cost you something, so get ready for it. But it's worth it. Pay the price and serve the body. Service always costs. It always requires something of value from you. It might be your time. It might be your talents. It might be your comfort. Do it anyway. Joseph of Arimathea knew what you and I in the 21st century often ignore. It wasn't his wealth or prestige or position that made him great. It was his obsession with serving the body. That's what will make you great. Okay, number four is be kind. If you want to live a great story, be kind. And for those of you who used to come to Bible study, you've heard all of this before, and you can hear it again. Some of you have heard this story before, and my mom is here, and she's going to recognize it. But um, the day before I was about to start my freshman year in high school, my mom sat me down on our... I think it was a gold couch and gold shag carpeting, you know, and she said, Carol, I I wanna talk to you about high school. And I said, okay. And she said, listen, honey, you're not gonna be the prettiest girl in the freshman class. I said, okay. And she said, and you're not gonna be the most musical girl in the freshman class. Okay. And she said, and you're not gonna be the most athletic, the smartest, or the most popular. And inside, I was thinking, boy, Mom, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for your belief in me. But she said to me, Carol, what you can be is the kindest. And that's what I want you to be, is the kindest girl in the freshman class. And so ever since that day, I won't tell you how many years ago, my mom wouldn't want me to tell you how many years ago it was, um, my course was set. I decided to be the kindest. Because I knew nothing else would probably work for me. Um <laughs> And have I always succeeded? No. At times I have failed abysmally and embarrassingly. But it's always been my goal. It's always been my preferred theme to be the kindest. Proverbs 19.22 says, What is desirable in a person is his kindness. So if you want people to want to be with you, then just be kind. You know, the story that you're living today will be more determined by your how than by your what. Let let me tell you what I mean by that. You're going to have a job. You're going to earn a salary. You're going to live in a house. You're going to drive a car. That's your what. But really, the theme of your story is more determined by your how. How you fulfill your life's call. Will you be impatient, demanding, opinionated, bossy, and easily offended? Or will you be kind? You are the only one with the power to choose how you live your life story. Now, let me tell you this. Your past should not determine your how. Don't give your past that much power in your lives. Your income should not determine your how. Don't give money that kind of power in your life. You are the only one who has the power to determine your how. You choose. Will I write a story of kindness and joy and peace? You choose your how. I want to encourage you today to choose kindness as your how. Wouldn't it be a blast? Let me tell you this. Wouldn't it be a blast if when history was written... And we're all in heaven together and we're sitting around just waiting to hear what, what Jesus and the Holy Spirit are going to say next. And if Jesus looks at the Holy Spirit and says, you, you go ahead and go. And the Holy Spirit says, no, Jesus, you tell. And, and Jesus says, okay, I'll tell. And, and Jesus says, you know, there were a group of women at the first part of the 21st century. And they were the kindest women in all of recorded history. And they changed the world because they were kind. Wouldn't that be a blast? Wouldn't that be so fun if that became our reality in heaven? Proverbs 31:26 says the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Now this word teaching means habit custom practice or doctrine that honey your tongue doesn't know anything else to say but kind words with a kind voice it's your habit it's your teaching it's your practice kindness is so much a part of who you are that it's always coming out of your mouth you know let me tell you something words are the most powerful way that we mother isn't that the truth words are the most powerful way that we marriage isn't that the truth Words is the most powerful way we relationship. So make sure that every word that comes out of your mouth is kind if you want to have successful relationships, if you want to have a great marriage, if you want to be a great mother. You know, this is what I believe. The life we've been given to live is not improv. We don't just get to sort of regurgitate and decide in the moment what we're going to say. No, there's a script that's been written for us. And the Holy Spirit says, every word you say is going to be kind. Have you decided that? Write it ahead of time. So next time when it's the the day in the month to pay the bills, you know you're going to be kind to your sweet husband. Because the teaching of kindness is on your tongue. Next time your two-year-old, you know, dumps the the plant all over your new living room carpet, the teaching of kindness is on your tongue. Next time your your sister-in-law critiques the way you cook, the teaching of kindness is on your tongue because you don't know any other way to be. You know, often it's in somebody's most difficult moments that they need the teaching of kindness to be on our tongues. But instead, we morph into Cruella de Vil, the Wicked Witch of the West, and Scrooge, and become a villain in our story rather than a heroine. But if you want to be a heroine in your story, the teaching of kindness will be on your tongue. Proverbs 3, three says this, don't let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them about your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Every day, sisters, when you get up, just have a conversation with kindness and say, kindness, you're not leaving me today. You might try to go somewhere, but you're not. You're staying with me all day long. And this is going to be the kindest day of my whole entire existence. Kindness is your how, and it's more important than your what. Colossians 3.12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And let me just tell you, the reason I put this verse in the teaching is because there will be moments when you have to put it on, when you don't feel kind. But you have to put it on anyway because you're beloved and you're holy and you're chosen of God. So you got to put on kindness and respond in a kind way. You know, in Romans it tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And if it works for God to bring people to him, I have a feeling it will work for you too. There might be people that you've been praying for for years in your family, in your neighborhood, um, in in your place of business, and maybe they're just waiting for you to be kind because kindness will draw people to repentance. Amen? Amen. Okay, number five. We've got number five and number six, and then you're going to get to eat some chocolate in the back corner, and you're going to get to spend money. So it's really better that you sit here and hear the word of God (laughs) than you go. (laughs) Listen, number five in your great story is to be a great Giver. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Are you kidding? Don't just. Lazarus had been dead. He was in the grave like three days. And now he's sitting around having supper with him. This is an incredible moment. This is historical. And Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who needed to hear this teaching because he wasn't very kind, who was intending to betray Jesus, said... Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So I have two questions for you tonight, just for you to ponder. Why did Mary give such an extravagant gift? And why did Judas get so upset? Aren't those the two questions that this story poses? Um, We see two hearts in this story a generous heart and a selfish heart. Um, The enemy of generosity is selfishness. And as I was studying for this teaching, it came to me, might be simple to you, but being an author, I thought it was interesting. Generous starts with G, and God is generous. Selfishness starts with S, and Satan. Is selfish. Isn't that interesting? Just a little tidbit for you to chew on. You know, let me tell you this we're all born selfish, but we're born again generous. Did you hear that? We're all born selfish, but we're born again generous. You were made to be like the Father, and He is generous. Did you ever notice how one of a child's first words is mine? Because they're born selfish. My my little nephew, Adam, who's now 40 years old and has his doctorate in the book of Luke. Go figure that one. When he was two years old, he just didn't say mine. He said mine, not yours. Mine, not yours. And his dad said if he ever had a boat, he was going to name it mine, not yours. Um, Judas said someone else should be giving. But he didn't really care about the poor. Jesus, isn't this interesting? Jesus had given Judas the money box. Why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus knows everything. And Jesus knew Judas' heart. Why would Jesus give Judas the money box? I think it was a test. It it wasn't a test for Judas to fail, but it, it was an opportunity for Judas to succeed, to be generous and to be unselfish. And you know what? I think... God gives us tests as well to see if we're generous or unselfish. I I think he does. He doesn't tempt us, but he tests us. You know, one of the things I read in studying for this is that David gave $21 billion to the temple in today's economy. The widow gave two mites, less than a penny in today's economy. It was all that she had. And in this story, Mary, what she gave was equal to about a year's wage. Can you imagine next time the offering plate comes down the aisle for you to put in a check for $65,000? Can you imagine that? That's what Mary did that night. And that's what Judas was so upset about. Mary not only gave it, she poured it on somebody's stinky feet a year's wages a year's wages. Let me ask you a question, my friends. Could you ever give a gift to God that would impress him? I think you can. I, I think you can. Um, could-, could we give a gift to the one that paves the streets with gold? Like, to God, gold is just asphalt. That's all gold is to God. It's just paving material. Could we as human beings ever give him a gift that would impress him? This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 3 through 5 says. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. They said, please, let us give some more. We haven't given enough. Let us give some more. Please let us participate. And this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So this is the, this is the scenario. This is the order of things. When you first give yourself to the Lord, you give him all that you have and all that you are. You give him your heart. And you ask Jesus to come in. And then after that, you're born again generous. You're born again generous. If you want to live a great story, be a great giver. Mark tells us about this same woman. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. I think she lived a great story. I think she lived a memorable story. She gave out of gratitude. She was so grateful because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And she was so excited that her brother had come back to life that she just gave and gave and gave to the Lord. Well, let me tell you something, sisters. You have been raised from the dead too. You've got something to be grateful about. You could never outgive the Lord. But I'm going to try. How about you? How about you? If you want to live a great life, live a life of trying to outgive God. And finally, our last point for tonight, and then I'm gonna go let you spend money and eat chocolate. Did you know that they made over 1500 pieces of dessert for you? I know, right? So listen, don't push people out of the way. That is not a great story. That's selfish and we know whose name starts with the letter S, selfish, okay. Let other people go first. There's plenty for everybody. Number six, embrace a great passion. If you want to live a great story, you will never live a great story if you plod through life with no passion, no enthusiasm, no purpose. Let me ask you a question. What is it that you were born to do? What is it that God was so excited about that He had to create one of you and you were the only one who could do it? He's given you the job description of one particular thing. That is your passion. What is the singular assignment that has your name on it? What is it that when God first thought of you, He declared, She is the one, she's going to get the job done, and I can't wait for her to do it? That's your passion. I've shared with you this scripture before, but I'm going to share it again, Acts 13 36. This is one of the scriptures that God gave to me when I was in the life and death battle with cancer. And I read the scripture and I stood up on the inside and it says, And David, when he served the purposes of God in his own generation, then he went to sleep. Sisters, don't die before you have lived. Live for the kingdom of God. God has purposes for you in your own generation that has your name on it just like David had purposes. You are loved just like David was loved and there's a purpose for you to accomplish. That should be your grand passion and that's what you are here to accomplish. Don't die without truly living. What is your passion? gardening, exercise, artwork, children, writing, singing, dancing, teaching, building, leading, numbers, decorating, missions work, volunteer work. What is your passion? The pro-life movement. What is your passion? Politics. What is your passion? Medicine. What is your passion? Sisters, you will never live your great story until you do it enthusiastically for the Lord. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Do it with enthusiasm, whatever it is you're called to do. Do it with enthusiasm as unto the Lord, not unto men, for it's the Lord you serve. So next time you're making grilled cheese sandwiches for three kids under five years old, do it with enthusiasm. Be the best grilled cheese maker that's ever lived. The the next time that you're having to do the laundry and fold that mountain of towels, do it with enthusiasm. Sing when you do it, because every great story is a musical. Whatever you do, do with enthusiasm. You know, Paul said in Acts 20, 24, he was was telling about all the things that had been prophesied over him, all the horrible things that were going to take place in his life, because he knew that he was bound to be tortured for the cause of Christ. And in the King James Version, after Paul makes the list of all the things that might happen to him, he says, but none of these things move me. Not one of these things is going to take me off my course. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry that I've received to testify of the grace of the gospel of God. Listen, I don't know what you're going through today, but don't let it move you. Don't let it move you from a place of passion. Stay in your calling, stay in your destiny. Forgive people who need forgiving, be a generous giver. A great story is always a musical. Be the kindest person alive at your generation. That's your outline for living a great story.